Father, we agree with the writer of Lamentations that your mercy is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We, we can't believe that you are so faithful to love us, to pursue us, to chase us down, and you love to do it, to wrap us up in your embrace. When we are wayward, when we are distracted, you pursue us. You are gentle, Jesus, and lowly in heart, and you say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus, we need to trust you for rest, trust you for continued faithfulness, and you are good for it. We thank you, we praise you, we love you for that, Jesus. Holy Spirit, right now we ask that you take the words of the Bible and that you use them to fashion us, to fashion our lives to be more like Jesus, to have a faithfulness to and like Jesus. Spirit, do that with the words of Scripture, please. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. You're the best. Amen. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Uh, my name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for being here to worship with us today. Hello over there, Auditorium 2. You guys look stunning and stellar per usual. Thank you for being here. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us there. And if you are here on site and you are visiting with us, extra special appreciation towards you for checking us out. We want you to know this, that above, over, around, beyond, and through every single thing we do, we want to be a community of grace that's pursuing life and mission with Jesus. That's what we want. And if you want to know about any of the specifics or the mechanics of that, we have a team out at our Welcome Center in the Commons, which is over here in Auditorium One, and they would love to help you answer any questions you have about how we think about all that here at Fellowship Greenville. Also, if you're visiting, uh, we want you to know that one of the things we do regularly on Sunday mornings is that we preach and teach straight through entire books of the Bible on Sunday morning. And today is a momentous occasion. Today is our 63rd and final sermon and message through the New Testament book of John. So again and again and again and again, John has used the word believe, and that's been our uh, series title. And John, John says it's the purpose of his book. Now to believe means to trust or to swear allegiance to. Believe is about faith and faithfulness. John writes in chapter 20 that his whole purpose is to get his readers, that's me and you, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the hero, the Lord, the Son of God, and that by believing we would experience eternal life with Jesus both now and forever. And since, you ready for this? Since August of 2019, we have been week in and week out considering what believing entails. And today we get to wrap up our journey in John in John chapter 21. So if you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that will be good, great, fine, wonderful. Thank you. John chapter 21, I promise we'll get there in a bit. Now, <clears throat> As you're finding your way there, I want to extend a personal happy Mother's Day to all you uh, lovely mamas out there. We thank God for you. We thank you. Uh, we would probably be in heaps, just stupid amounts of trouble if it was not for your love and influence in our life. Amen. Times a thousand. Yes. <laughs> um, also... I would like to say a person, a very personalized Happy Mother's Day to my mom. Hey, mom, you still got it, girl. She usually watches or listens, and she's the greatest. I love you so, so much. Daniel and I would be a waste of space uh, without you. And 
to the fairest maiden of them all, Sarah Thompson, world's greatest mama, 12 years running. Now, here's the deal. Sarah continually wins this international uh, Olympic level accolade for a million reasons, but one of them is that she helps poor old me out when it comes to parenting. So she makes me a better parent, she balances me out, she encourages me, let's be honest, a lot of times she tolerates me, and so she helps me out when it comes to parenting and makes me a better parent. And even though we both still feel sometimes like we don't know what we're doing, which I have learned is just parenting, uh, a couple of things lately have risen to the surface that we're trying to kind of press into James and Anna Jubilee. And I'm getting ready to let you know what these things are. And if this is bad advice, just be like, well, Jim's an idiot. Or just, just kind of let it go. But <clears throat> these things have been stirring in my mind as a parent and just in my heart uh, as well. So lately, we've been telling James and Anna Jubilee to pay extra close attention to every single room that they walk into. We're like, hey guys, every single space that you walk into or context you're in, you should ask yourself two questions. One, who's in charge here and what does it mean to respect them and obey them? So if you're at a restaurant, you cannot kick your feet up on the table and leave without paying. That would be incredible. Sadly, we're not quite there yet, okay? That's just not the deal. So if you're in FG Kids or you're in FG Students, even though making your friends laugh when they're not supposed to is still fun, I'll admit that 100% absolutely all the way, still think first and foremost about, hey, what does it mean to honor, trust, obey, and respect the person who is in charge there? right? And for them right now in their lives, they're not going to be walking into any room anytime soon and be like, oh yeah, I call the shots in here. Like that's, that's not the case for them. And so the first reason that they should ask this first question is because ultimately this is a commentary on God and how God is ultimately in charge. And so doing this is a way of trusting and obeying God. Now also perhaps maybe one day They might find themselves in a space where they are wearing the boss pants. And so if that day comes, they're going to want the same respect and obedience from the people that God has placed under them. So we were talking about this the other day, and we get to this point in the conversation, and Anna Jubilee uh, chimes in. She's eight, and she goes, so I'm in charge of my room, right? And she gives me these like hopeful, adorable little side eyes which I can't say no to. And I think she just wants the delegated power to like command her older brother once he crosses the threshold of her door, which I totally understand. Oh, you guys know, yeah, you guys know. Yeah, they know my daughter. Um, And I get that, I totally understand that. And I said, well, me and your mama still need to pay this house off, but let's just say that you're responsible for your room. And I guess that pacified her just, uh, just a little bit. So. When we talk to James and Anna, this obviously comes with one footnote, and that is unless somebody is telling you to do something that is against God's word or against God's will, which is a backdoor way of saying, hey, we need to love the Bible. We need to love God's word. But in general, you should be asking, okay, who's the boss in here, and what does it mean to do what they say, biblically, relationally, and creatively? That's question one. Now, question two, Sarah and I have been thinking about with James and Anna Jubilee. Uh, This is the opposite end of the spectrum. We're like, hey guys, in every single room or space or place that you walk into, there will be someone who wants to be there the least, okay? Someone in that room or space or place or context might feel like they don't belong, they might feel like they're alone, that they would rather be somewhere else. And your job, as best as you can, is to find out who that person is and just be nice to them and be compassionate to them. 
Jesus left the 99 sheep for the one, right? And if we're thinking about this, if we're asking this question, this is a way for us to do that parable of Jesus. And I'm not saying it's easy. This one's a lot more difficult to know who specifically it is than, than the other question. I would say it's easy. And I'm not saying there's an equational absolute way to do it every time. And I'm not saying it's, it's simple, but I do think this is a way to follow Jesus's example. Several years ago, our adult ministry team got together and we were talking through our Strength Finders results. Uh, maybe you know about the Strength Finders kind of personality interactive uh, test. Um, and it was a cool time to be like, oh, this is, why, this is why you're really good at this. Or, oh, this is why I feel really helped when you and I work on this thing together. But we, we also talked through each other's weaknesses, which had an opportunity to be a wonderful, delicious shame sandwich. And we got around to me and we obviously talked about my wonderful, humble proclivity to self-righteousness. We talked about how I'm too picky and idealistic, how I'm not a good listener and I always need attention, really encouraging stuff for my soul. And then we got, we got to one weakness and it actually made me really happy. One of the weaknesses in my strength finder says this, waste time on low potential people. And I'm like, well, strength finders, thanks. Like, I, I know what they're saying, but, but I'm like, I took it as a compliment. And, and, and then the adult ministry team was like making jabs at me, making fun of me. And I was like, guys, 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 you wanna go to lunch sometime? <laughs> hey, yeah. Hey, that's good material, man. That's really funny. So, so here's the deal. So as Sarah and I are talking to James and Anna Jubilee about all this, we want them with this question too, to be aware and sensitive of people who are struggling, people who are sensitive and what they're thinking and feeling so you can better serve them. So people, listen, every room you walk into, people are gonna be hurting. You might not know what it is, but you're supposed to, by God's grace, figure it out and Jesus wants us to shoulder other people's pain with them. So question one, who has authority in every room you walk into? And don't fight to be the loudest or the boss in that room, but just think about obeying and respecting who is. And question two, who is the most vulnerable and hurting and bummed out in whatever space you're in? And then if you can, find a way just to be nice to them and don't do it to get noticed or so you can put it on Instagram. Jesus left the 99 for the one and we're supposed to be like Jesus. Or to glue both questions into one, <clears throat> let's just do it like this. Who, in any space you go into, who is the most in charge and the least in charge, and what should you do about it? Now, I call this entire way of thinking, I call it relational obedience, relational obedience. Like, most of us know that rules divorced from relationship just make robots, but this is something different. You need to get to know these people underneath these two questions and what they want and what they need and find ways to obey them and heed them and serve them and care for them and love them. This is relational obedience, not principial obedience, which is just about, hey, do this, don't ask questions, and don't worry about intimacy or connectivity. Don't do that. This is about faithfulness that comes out of fellowship with people. This is about obedience that comes out of relationship with people. So, when we go to the Bible, I think we need to start thinking in these categories. There, there are absolutely rules in the Bible. And here's where a lot of people get tripped up. Please get this. <clears throat> absolutely there are rules in the Bible. But look, zero of the rules in the Bible have to do with bringing people into relationship with God. <clears throat> zero of those rules. All of the rules in the Bible are to liberate the people that God is already in relationship with. They're to set them free so they can have tracks to run on in obedience to God. 
The rules in the Bible are for people who are already in relationship with God. Think about Romans 13. This is the first question. Submit to governing authorities. Think about Matthew 25. Do this to the least of these. Serve the least of these. Ephesians 6, honor your mama and your daddy and your boss, right? James chapter one. We're supposed to care for the widow and the orphan and the broken and the stranger. So when we step back and consider all of these and more, we need to ask, what's the main way? What's the main posture that we're supposed to have when we approach these responsibilities? There's gonna be a most of these and a least of these in every context you're in, and we're called to do something about it. And I don't care what your excuses. I don't wanna be mean, but like, if you're like, well, I'm only 15, or I'm an introvert, or I got five kids, or I'm old and retired, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm talking about what Jesus is calling us, commanding us, and inviting us into. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have to be mindful of this stuff. Because you know what we usually do? What we usually do is this. We walk into a space, and our first thought is, what is gonna give me the most safety or comfort in here? We walk into a space and we go, how am I gonna get the most praise or applause in this room right now? We go somewhere and we go, okay, okay, what can I do that can coddle what I feel and want the most? And I go ahead and tell you, that's not the way of Jesus. Rather, like Jesus before the cross, he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So we need to learn this dance of submission and service, of respect for the greatest of these and care for the least of these. So what is the primary shape that this kind of obedience should take and how do we know when we're dancing this dance rightly? Like, <clears throat> I wanna learn these things personally. As a father, I want my kids to learn these things. And as his church, I think our Father in Heaven wants us to consider this as well. What does faithfulness to relational obedience look like? What does faithfulness to relational obedience look like? And that is our question this morning. Now, to answer this question, we will look at the very last passage in the book of John. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. John will help us ponder what fuel we need for this kind of faithfulness. John 21, 15 through 25. Here we go. <clears throat> when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. <clears throat> Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, well, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And so Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, man, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't wanna go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to Peter, Jesus said, follow me. Verse 20. <clears throat> Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what, what about this guy? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that <clears throat> this disciple was not to die. 
yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that this testimony, that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written? I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, if you missed Charlie's message last week, um, you might be wrong. It was incredible. It was a beautiful and powerful reminder of the grace and forgiveness that we have in Jesus. I highly encourage you to go re-listen or listen to it, um, especially because it's like a, a prequel to what we're talking about today. <clears throat> and we get to look, of, look at some of, uh, more of it today, but Charlie showed us some of the connections between Peter's story in John chapter 18 and Peter's story in John chapter 21. Noting the only two usages, John's only two usages of the phrase charcoal fire with a seemingly insignificant detail, but there's something big underneath there. Charlie pointed this out in chapters 18 and 21. He said, Jesus turns the burning agony of failure into the warm glow of fellowship. The place that Peter failed, the charcoal fire in 18, is now the place from which Jesus nourishes Peter at breakfast in chapter 21 which is so, so beautiful and good, the place of Peter's like, brokenness and struggle and frustration. Jesus is now, that's now the place where uh, Jesus breaks bread with Peter. So Charlie talked about how Peter moved from failure to fellowship, and today we get to look at the next step. So what's after breakfast? What comes after fellowship for Peter? And this is the same question for us as what is relational obedience all about? Now, lucky for us, the answer to this is just sitting right there on the surface of the text, and John even does us a huge favor. He repeats it three times. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, absolutely, you know all the stuff, so you know I love you. All right, good. Feed my sheep. And so Jesus intends to move Peter from failure to fellowship to faithfulness. Now, on one level, it's really, really simple. We can just pack it all up, and we might be able to beat the Baptist to lunch. We can just do it right now. Sermon is over. Like, we're done but the Gospel of John, it is said that it is shallow enough for a toddler to splash around in and deep enough for a herd of elephants to swim through. So what we need to do is push out into the deep end just a little bit and consider this faithfulness piece just a little bit more of the interaction between Jesus and Peter. <laughs> also, um, if you go read the other three biographies of Jesus, they all have this final commissioning from Jesus to the disciples. It's like he gathers them all together in a huddle, like right before the end of the game, and he gives them this strategy, this game plan, and then they step back on the field, and they're energized, and they're ready with kind of a greater sense of mission. The most famous of these is Matthew 28, and we call it the Great Commission. Look up on the screens. This is what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, he is in charge in every single space you walk into, period. And you need to obey somebody there as a way to obey him. So he says, all authority has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. So go to the ends of the earth, even to the least of these, because the least of these are everywhere. 
So all right, you guys got that? That's the game plan, team on three, one, two, three, team. And if we're reading straight through the New Testament up until this point in John 21, the relational obedience is supposed to be faithful like this. This is what the faithful is supposed to look like. Go, get out of here. Go, move, do it. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John does something a little bit different. Look at verse 15. Look, they finish breakfast around the charcoal fire. And it's like Jesus goes, hey, Peter, come here, man. And they go to take a walk on the beach, and it's just Peter and Jesus talking, and Jesus turns to Peter, and he goes, Peter, do you love me more than these? Which I think is a really interesting question, because does he mean, hey, Peter, do you love me more than you love all these guys over here? Like, they're your bros. You guys have been through a lot. Do you love me more than you love them? Or does he mean, Peter, do you love me more than they do? which is like a setup, because you don't want to be like, yes. You also don't want to go, no. Nah. Like it's, <clears throat> like Jesus, Jesus knows what he's doing when he asks questions, okay? Or some scholars say that there's still like fishing gear laying around, and Jesus kind of like nudges, notes the fishing gear of the boat, and he goes, do you love me more than these? Like your job, your work, like what you do. You're really good at it. Do you love me more, do you love me more than all this? I think, <clears throat> I think it's intentionally vague, and we're supposed to go, okay, there's a more than these here. But I, I think the practical implications of this for us are, are really convicting. Here we go. Do you love Jesus more than you love your husband? Do you love Jesus more than you love your kids? Do you love Jesus more than you love sports? Do you love him more than food? Do you love him more than shopping, more than comfort? Do you, do you love Jesus more than politics? I pray to God, hope so. Do you love Jesus more than a, a curated life on social media? I pray to God, hope so. Do you love him more than your friends who only tell you what you want to hear? Do, do you love Jesus more than control and money and cars and house and health and sex and Netflix and ESPN and your iPhone and your reputation and all the stuff you collect that'll be in a garage sale in five years? Do you love Jesus more than these? Do you love him more than that stuff? When people think about you, do they think that you love any one of these single things more than Jesus? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, because Jesus had just finished the breakfast around the fire where, he, where Peter was reminded of his failure, denying Jesus three times, imagine the like humility and confidence combo with which Peter looked Jesus in the eye and go, he says, yeah. You know it, Lord. <laughs> Guys, can you respond like that? I'll help. No, can I? I'm a pastor. Do you love me more than these, Jim? And I'd be like, oh, uh, well. I mean, just, how do, you, how do you do that? And here, Jesus is not asking about a ranked love. He's asking about a superlative, preeminent love. And Peter says, yes. So what I'm saying is that Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus, who's king of all the kings and lord of all the lords, who just put death in its place by his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus, who is in charge no matter what room you walk into, he's the boss of all the bosses, the way he wants us to relate to him is love. Not distant fear, not lifeless submission, love. John writes later, 
This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's repeated in both Testaments throughout the whole Bible. You should love the Lord your God, Jesus. You should love him with all your heart or your soul or your mind or your strength, with your entire life. That's why Jesus said, more than these. It's not, look, this is, this took me a while to get. <clears throat> it's not that loving football and friends and family, it's not, that's not evil, but it becomes wrong and evil if it's not a means to the end of loving Jesus more. And still, it still blows my mind <clears throat> that Peter has the meekness and the boldness to say yes. Also, really quickly, some of you guys know that there are a couple of different words for love in this passage, and ink has been spilled all over the place theologically about what it means, what Jesus means, what John means with all that. Um, I think those are great discussions, but minimally, I think it's talking about the maximum and most comprehensive love. I think John's implying that and Jesus is implying that with these different words. So, when we consider this end of the spectrum of relational obedience, I think, I think we, could sh we can say it like this. Let's do it. The way we obey Jesus supremely is by loving him above everything and loving him through everything. The way that we obey Jesus supremely is by loving him above everything and loving him through everything. So he's the only one worthy of this kind of love. He's the only one who can deal with sin and death. He's the only one who can make all these other fractured glimpses of, of life have pleasure and joy because he himself is our climactic joy. And this reality of supreme love due to Jesus should nuance the way we respect and honor lesser authorities in our day-to-day -day lives. This is exactly what I wanna learn. It's what I want my kids to learn. And I think something like this is what Jesus is trying to get Peter to learn. But what is the primary shape that this love should take? And the answer is Jesus' response to Peter's response. Look at the last words in verse 15. Verse 15, Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, feed my lambs. So this is the opposite end of the relational obedience spectrum. This is about the least of these. <clears throat> also, I love this contrast here. Again, notice how different this feels than the commissionings in the last chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Notice how different it feels here in John. It's not to a group of people, it's just to Peter. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the commission is go, 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 do it, go spread, get on, get move, go bring people into the fold, into the family. And in John 21, here it's one person, and Jesus goes, go to the lambs, go to my people, go inward, go into the fold, go into the flock, go feed my sheep, serve them, care for them, have compassion on them. And the different directionalities of these different commissions aren't against each other, but need each other. They fuel each other. If nothing too crazy happens this week, um, one week from tonight, I will sit in a circle with our new summer interns, and I will mention these exact words of Jesus to them. <clears throat> I tell them at the beginning of every single summer that their entire experience with us is about learning to love Jesus by loving his church. And I think I've said it before, but if you claim to love Jesus and you don't love his church, then you don't love Jesus, at least the way that Jesus is asking Peter to right here. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Meaning, give yourself to the body of Christ in every way you can. 
with others. Be honest and open and vulnerable. Get in a community group. Have people that you can pray with and laugh with and cry with and eat with. Have people that you can talk about the Bible with, that you can talk about sin struggles with, that you can talk about your family with. Have relationships with other people. Study and learn the art of loving Jesus by tending to Jesus's family. And yes, this shepherd, flock, sheep motif is throughout John, it's throughout the Psalms, and throughout the prophets, but we can't miss part of the most basic meaning to it, and that's this. Sheep are not clever animals, okay? They're pretty distracted, they're, they're pretty like, oh, what's going on? They need a leader, <clears throat> they need direction, they need protection. I went to uh, an all-day pastor's conference one day, and they actually brought in like a modern-day shepherd to talk, and it was, fasc- it was fascinating. I couldn't even take notes. I was like, tell me more. Like, it, was, it was terribly, terribly insightful and interesting. I'm like, I'm never like that. You know, and it was just so fun. But this guy, he, he said that sometimes sheep would just wander off on their own and not follow the flock, and then they get kind of lost and turned around and isolated, and on their own, they would just fall down and die there in the wilderness. That sheep, sheep have to stay together. They have to be together to be nourished. They have to traverse rough terrain together. Like if the rod and the staff weren't there, a sheep might just slip off a cliff without even knowing it. Like sheep are fragile creatures. On their own, they can be pretty helpless and pretty needy. And this is exactly why I want James and Anna to walk into a room and go, who's hurting the most in here? Who's the most vulnerable in here? And how can I find creative ways just to be nice to them and be present to them? Why? Because Jesus left the 99 for the one and we're supposed to be like, Jesus, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. So, on one side of this relational obedience spectrum, we obey Jesus supremely by loving him above everything and through everything. And on the other side, we serve others supremely by compassionate care for their needs, just like Jesus. We serve others supremely by compassionate care for their needs, just like Jesus. Now, I I could go off on an eternal rabbit trail about all those specific things that this could mean, and I absolutely think that it means deep talks over supper and, and babysitting and prayer with and for one another and meal trains and carpool and all that fun stuff, but to truly understand someone's deepest needs and to understand what they feel about their practical needs, you actually have to get to know them as a person. This compassion requires something out of you. It might require your time or your resources, a break in your routine. It might require you setting aside personal preference. It will definitely require relational investment. Let me say it to you like this. If you think that the pinnacle of church life is you doing this for 75 minutes, two and a half times a month, and that's it, you are wildly missing out on intimacy with Jesus by means of intimacy with his people. Do you know how glorious and beautiful it is when we're all seeking the good of the other and compassionately out to serve one another? Wish it should be a game of like, who can outserve the other person, right? Do you know how compelling it is to a world trying to find a Messiah in DC and Hollywood when Christians joyfully actually like each other, help each other out and get along and really, really enjoy doing it? Do you know how important that is? Not only do we need it, the watching world without Christ needs to see it too. 
This is only possible in an entire flock. This is only possible in a local church. This does not work if your version of Christianity is a solo self-esteem project. It will not work. Feed my lambs, plural. Now, the scary part of this is that I'm 30 minutes in and we're still in verse 15. (laughs) And I have no shame about that. But I think the scarier part is that by the end of verse 15, Peter actually understood it, right? He actually, I think he, I think he felt his responsibility to the full gamut of relational obedience. But for some reason, some mysterious reason, Jesus asks him again in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I'm not sure what Peter thought. I mean, please use your imagination when you read the Bible. That's, you know, Best way to be friends with me is use your imagination when you read the Bible. And so I, I don't know what Peter's thinking like. Wait, what? Is he, maybe his resurrection brain is just a little foggy. I mean, he is Jesus, so we'll just go with, yeah, you know I love you. <clears throat> and then Jesus comes again, right, right at him. Simon, do you love me? And this time, Peter moves past confused right to flustered. Verse 17, look, it says that he is grieved. <clears throat> That's a Greek word about emotional heaviness. And I wonder if when Jesus asks a third time, if Peter calls to mind his three denials from chapter 18. Three questions and commissions from Jesus to echo Peter's three denials. This is Jesus reminding Peter of his grace in Peter's movement from failure to fellowship. And as Jesus is teaching him about the next move from fellowship to faithfulness, he's saying, hey, Peter, guess what? When you go to feed my sheep, guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna bite at your hand, buddy. That's exactly what they're gonna do. And guess what else? You did that, and now I need you to be as gracious with them as I was with you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. And then in verse 18, Jesus basically says, Peter, just like my grace to you was seen supremely in my death for you, you're actually gonna end up dying by crucifixion too because of your love for me and because of your service to my sheep. And I love the last simple bit of verse 19, the last two words, follow me. You know why I love that? That's the first thing Jesus told Peter in chapter one. It's the last thing that he tells him in chapter 21. Isn't that so, so powerful and wonderful? And in between these two calls, Jesus is more merciful and willing than we can fathom to walk with us through any failure, to restore us to intimate fellowship, and to empower us to future faithfulness as we trust him. Jesus is good for that. He is trustworthy to that end. Then in verse 20, as they're talking, and again, I don't know what Peter's thinking in his brain, but he hears footsteps maybe off in the distance behind him, turns around, look, John's running their way, so Peter leans into Jesus and basically goes, what about this guy? Is he, gonna, is he gonna die in the same way that you're telling me I'm gonna die? And Jesus replies in verse 22, if you wanna look at verse 22, he says, if it's my will that he stays until I come, listen, you, you can't control other people. This is like counseling 101, Peter. <clears throat> you can't control other people. Peter, you need to follow me. You need to follow me. But it's no shock that the disciples misunderstood that. If you look in verse 23, and they're confused and over and under interpreting what Jesus said about John. And and to me, that reminds me that our call to follow him, our call to love Jesus above everything and through everything, our call to serve 
others with no expectation of return, that is not built on having perfect understanding, thank God. It's also not built on having a perfect track record. It's built on God's forever secured, anchored love in the gospel of Jesus. And that he shows off that forgiving love by using people who can be idiots like me and you and Peter, right? And then I absolutely love verse 25. John says the whole world couldn't contain all the books if we wrote down everything Jesus did. And I actually think, if you wanna push me a little bit, I actually think this is the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from chapter one, just a different version of it. I think about it like this. What if we're supposed to be like living books of verse 25? Jesus is the word made flesh in chapter one. So what if in chapter 21, we're supposed to go be little versions of that for the world to read, for the world to see and read of God's love and his grace and his power in our lives because of Jesus. And I think that's exactly what John is starting to like nudge us towards with Peter's example. I think that's exactly what he's doing. Come on, come this way. Come this way, follow me this way. Faithfulness is this way. So, what do we need to do about it? How should we respond to Peter's example here? I've got, I'm sure you guys could come up with more on your own and uh, in your families or in your community groups, but I've got five questions that I think are helpful to ask as we think about relational obedience, faithfulness to relational obedience in our own lives, here we go, question number one. Do I love Jesus above everything else? Plain and simple, right out of the gate, direct. Do I love him more than anything else? Here's the essence of this question. If you lump Jesus in with all these other temporal worldly loves, including good things like family, but if you lump Jesus in with all those other things and all of those things fade, fall, and crumble, and they will, then guess what, you don't have any more good reason to love Jesus because you put him on the same shelf as everything else, right? Peter, do you love me more than these? That's Jesus asking Peter, do you love me above everything else? And he asks you the exact same question today. Do I love Jesus above everything else? Question two, do I love everything else as a means to love Jesus more? Again, Jesus didn't say don't love stuff. 1 Timothy 6 says he gave us all good things to enjoy as a means to the end of enjoying him. The implication of this is that all these lesser loves are meant to be loved as an avenue by which we adore and treasure and cherish Jesus more and more and more. So do you do that? Question three, do I specifically and practically love Jesus by loving his church? Are you tending his flock? Are you feeding his sheep? Here you go. At what level are the needs of people in this church on your radar? Are you just trying to fly by so you can feel spiritual three Sundays a month? At what level are the needs of this family of God, this flock here, on your radar? Every single one of us needs every other single one of us. Faith is meant to be personal. It is never meant to be private. And so what does it look like for you to serve Jesus' family here? Question four. What are, the, oh no, what are the primary excuses that I make when I'm trying to avoid feeding Jesus' sheep? Now, this is super tough because it's tough, but it's also tough because in Luke's gospel, he says that Martha was distracted with much serving. So there's a lot of good and glorious and great things that we can do for Jesus' sake. <clears throat> 
But I think the best question, like the way to do it is what justifications run through my head when I sense God calling me to more deliberate and intentional care and compassion for other believers? What justifications run through my head when that happens? Primary excuses. Lastly, question five. What in my life does Jesus want me to change so that I can more faithfully follow him? Now, absolutely, I think this can be an idol, this can be a sin pattern, this can be an addiction, but it also could be something that just turns your attention away from loving him and serving his people. Like, what might need to be turned down or turned all the way off in your life so that the vision of following Jesus might be more clear before you? What might that be? in your life. Now, look at these. Think about how they hit. Think about the weight of them. Now, maybe not in the same way that we're processing them right now, but in some way, I'm thinking that Peter is probably feeling the brunt of thoughts like these. He's like, okay, it's time. I gotta get back in the game. Like That's what Peter is feeling, and we should feel the same thing. We should absolutely feel a weight in all this. It is a massive responsibility to walk in a different place and go, okay, who's in charge and how do I honor them as a way to honor God? It's a big deal to, to take Jesus' sacred commission seriously, to walk into a space and go, okay, who's the least of these here? Who's hurting and lonely and needy? And what does it mean to serve Jesus' sheep here? We need to feel the prompting and pressure to daily consider these questions. <laughs> but, but, not first and foremost. First and foremost, we need to know that our duty is based on what is already done. In God's economy of eternity and salvation, because of Jesus, it is finished. Everything required for you to be in and stay in relationship with God, Jesus has already done. Here's what I mean. We don't obey and serve and give our lives away so that God will love us. Rather, we do it because he has already perfectly loved us in Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He has eternally tended to his sheep by laying down his life for them on the cross. He feeds his lambs with his own life. And <clears throat> the Bible says that we'll hunger and we'll thirst no more. And he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes because he has conquered death. Like he has seen our hurt He has seen our brokenness and our neediness. He has taken into himself our sheepish waywardness. He has taken into himself the judgment of our sin and the separation and the death that were headed our way, justly and rightly headed our way. He stepped in the way. And now, because of his great love and grace, this is the most mind-blowing thing, he now wants us to partner with him in caring for his flock. And so now we are called to a faithfulness that comes out of fellowship and a loyalty that comes out of love. And it is a glorious responsibility to follow Jesus into a life of self-giving love. And I hope that you see that more clearly today. Fellowship, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Fellowship Greenville, there are many other things that Jesus did. And if we wrote them all down, I bet we could never ever fill all the libraries in the entire world with the books. But they would all be an extended commentary on what he has already done for us as the good shepherd because he laid down his life for his sheep and now we need to follow him to do the same. I hope you guys are with me on that. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we thank you for all that you are and all that you have done for us. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And we want to love you and obey you and trust you and follow you and cherish you and adore you and honor you and submit to you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and all of our strength. And we want to humbly and graciously and with mercy, compassion and service tend to your people. Holy Spirit, we don't have the strength, wisdom, discernment and power to do that on our own. So Holy Spirit, you're gonna have to come into our hearts, come into our lives, come into this church in a special way and stir that among us so that a watching world watches with their mouths and their eyes wide open and going, I need that. Spirit, you have to stir that in our midst. Please do it, Holy Spirit, so that we would be more like Jesus. Jesus, we love you so much. You're the best, amen.